0: This is Annabelle Gatt, and you're listening to The Serpent Cast. Sophie St. Thomas isn't here recording with me this week because she's on a very cool press tour in California, smoking a lot of weed and celebrating being featured as one of the Women in Weed by High Times Magazine. I am so proud of her. Today, we have a very cool crossover episode with astrologer Ashley Otero who has a new podcast about astrology, spirituality, and motherhood called The Cosmic Supel. And I will be doing some segments with her called Witches
1: Brew Wednesday, so definitely check out that podcast. Ashley, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for having me. It's exciting to be on your show. I love your guys' show. It's awesome. So I'm happy to be here. Yay! So, in addition to being an
0: astrologer and a mom, you're also an acupuncturist, and you also lead tea ceremonies. So, I'd love to chat with you about both of those things, but first, I need to ask you the question that we ask everyone on the show, which is, what's your sign, and what is your Hogwarts house?
1: So, I'm an Aquarius, and uh, my Hogwarts house is Slytherin. Ooh, that's a very interesting <laughs> combination. Yeah. Yeah. What?
0: So, can you? What's the dynamic like? What's it like being an Air sign in such a watery house? How do you feel about that?
1: Um, I mean, I've, it really resonates with me, I guess, because the rest of my chart has a lot of water already. Um, mm-hmm. But when we're talking about like Slytherin, I, I, I don't know. I, I just feel like. Um, it resonates for me. I, I tend to probably come across as somewhat mysterious, even though I don't try to be um, I'm somewhat aloof maybe. Or, but at the same time, I guess maybe one of the better ways to express this would be that um, I'm going to take you back to when I was in college and I was in business school, one of my professors had us take This um, quiz—it was like a test to figure out what type of marketer we were. Uh, So this was for a course in um, customer relationship management, and I—the reason I'm sharing this is because I still feel like that the results of that test were so on point and express, you know, even my chart or who I am in a business type of way, but it kind of relates to this. So the results were that I was a, um, what was it called? An expressive analytic. So I fell under the analytical side. I was an analytical type of uh, marketer or business person, but I was also expressive. And I fit, I feel like that really, that really hits the nail on the head. I'm very analytical um probably to a negative part where I overanalyze things. Um, but at the same time I'm expressive, and I think that's where that air sign kind of comes in. I, I feel it's very important to communicate about things and and I like to express my my likes, my dislikes, I like to express details. So Yeah. Yeah.
0: Have you ever heard this concept that Aquarius is the secret fourth water sign? I have not. Yeah, I, I, that's something I that's I, haven't interesting. Heard, I haven't heard it recently, which I'm actually k- kind of, it's weird. On one hand, I really like this theory. On the other hand, I'm happy that like, you know, the internet hasn't like yeah. taken over. You know what I mean? It's yeah, something yeah. silly. I haven't heard in a long time, but I remember when I was first like really getting into astrology again in like the mid 2000s, I was hearing people say like, oh, Aquarius is like the secret fourth water sign, like, you know. They're, they might be, like, really aloof and detached, but they're still very, um, like, brooding
1: and, like, whatever. And I think it kind of makes sense. It does. It does yeah. make sense. I, um, I Yeah, I, I like the point that you said. I'm glad it's not, like, something that Instagram has kind of, like, crapped all over by saying, oh, Aquarius is the fourth water sign because it's Aquarius, and they think aqua, and they think, yeah. oh, water bearer, they think water. It's not, you know, um, but at the same time, it does resonate in that sense, because, you know, Aquarius is the water bearer, so it, it pours down the water, so there is water incorporated into the sign, it's just not all about that, but it really, it does kind of, it resonates, it's it's a very uh, yeah. kind of detached sort of sign. The focus of the water bearer is not the
0: water, but it's on the bear ring, you know, because yes. like, water is emotion, and we have oceans of emotion all over the planet, but, you know, whether we're talking about literal oceans or people with big emotions, which most of us do, but Aquarius, this like air sign is the whole concept of like a container for emotions and like using like your five fingers and your opposable thumbs and your intellect to like craft like ways to hold hold complex emotional ideas. Yeah.
1: Anyway. Yes. And the vessel for the vessel for all of that, because it's holding the jug and pouring it down from the heavens. Right. So,
0: yes. Yeah. So, So speaking of jugs and pouring water down from the heavens, let's talk about tea. Okay. Tell me a little bit about
1: what a tea ceremony is like. Okay. Well, tea has been used actually in ceremonies for hundreds of years. Uh, People have integrated it into weddings, social events, spiritual initiations, other milestone celebrations, um, even things such as funerals. So uh, tea ceremony has largely been an important piece in the student-teacher relationship throughout Asian culture, especially in regards to the transmission of wisdom. So for example, tea has played a key role in the Zen tradition And if you're familiar with the four foundations of Zen, it becomes clear why. So those foundations are the nonverbal transmission between teacher and student, no dogma, so there's no lasting philosophy or view, no doctrine or scripture. Uh, It also, as a foundation, Zen is meant to lead to the heart of a person, and it's supposed to reveal the truth of nature as it is. And Tea ceremony really is great about kind of wrapping all of this up into one and a practice. So the tea ceremony actually begins before guests arrive to the ceremony. And 80% of it involves this ritual of cleaning. And it's not just cleaning the parts that people can see, you know, like sweeping or mopping the floor and like dusting off shelves. It's everything because energetically – That, you know, if you don't clean something, it's still not going to be clean. And it doesn't matter if someone sees it or not. It's the energy of the space that you're creating. So even before the culmination of the ceremony starts, there's this, you know, you have to go back to the cultivation of the tea from the tree, Um, the harvesting of it, the processing of it. And then before finally uh, culminating in this act of enjoying your efforts, that is when the ultimate peak or basically the ceremony that everyone knows um, tea ceremony as, is when you're experiencing it, either sitting down at a table or on the floor and enjoying a cup of tea. But all those actions and everything that came before that, that is that is also part of the ceremony. Um so if you were to attend a tea ceremony, tea ceremony, or if you've attended one before, you're most likely to have had one of two experiences. Uh, in the end, regardless of the ceremony, from an outsider's perspective, it's really just like you're simply watching someone skillfully prepare you a cup or a bowl of tea. So from an outsider's per- uh, experience, it might look rather boring. It might seem like Uneventful, but it's it's more about the experience and the space and the community that's created, the connections that are created with people. Um, so there are, like I was saying before, there's kind of one of two experiences. And I'm really simplifying it down to two traditions. So there's the Chinese tea ceremony, which is known as Gong Fu Cha. So Gong Fu is basically like Kung Fu. So it's uh, basically just creating or um, serving tea with skill. So Cha is tea and Gong Fu is, you know, to do something with skill. So... Yeah, so, um, you know, you see this all over in the Chinese culture and Asian culture in general, but as well as Chinese, you see this, you know, whether it's martial art or whether it's cooking, anything that's done with skill. So, gong um, cha is a traditional Chinese tea ceremony, and you'll often have music playing in the background. It's a very relaxing setting, uh, traditional music. Uh, There's usually incense uh, that is a very big part of tea ceremony as well. Incense and tea just go together. They they really create an ambient setting. Uh, Also seasonal flowers. Um, But you'll see this more emphasized in the Japanese tea ceremony, which I'll talk about in a second. But some of the differences you'll find, for example, in a Chinese tea ceremony, you're usually seated at a table and in front of you is the tea server, and they'll have an assortment of instruments that help them create this perfect cup of tea relatively, there's tiny teapots, and I say relatively tiny, uh, because if you see like an English teapot, for example, it's, you know, it's like a teapot. It's what you would probably normally expect, but you would probably be very surprised if you've never been to a Chinese tea ceremony and you sat down and you see the teapots that are used. Usually these are for small intimate settings or not like large parties, uh, you know, like maybe a few people Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe five or six at most. Mm-hmm. And, <laughs> you know, the teapots are pretty small. People usually like, if when I serve tea for the first time to some people, and if I'm doing, you know, if I'm using a, a Chinese teapot or a Yixing teapot, which is like a clay teapot, People often are like, oh, that's so cute. And they think like it's a toy or something. <laughs> They're like, oh, it's like a little Barbie teapot. It's so tiny. It's so like a mouse teapot or something. It's so cute. And they are very tiny. Um, and they are tiny on purpose. And not much of this has to do with uh, controlling or creating. Um, the kind of liqueur that you want from the tea, so you want to be able to control as much as you can. That's easier to do in smaller batches with smaller teapots. So um, with those tiny teapots, you have very tiny teacups. And people are also very surprised by the size of the teacups as well because it's like maybe you get two or three sips out of it. But it's meant to – it's not meant to be gulped, really. It's meant to be appreciated, to be enjoyed slowly. So it's a very leisurely kind of thing to sit there with your cup of tea and you don't just, like, take it like a shot or something. You just slowly sip your tea. And much of this is revolved around um, the meditative aspects of tea, so, um, you what some of the process. And I'm not going to break it down completely, but just like a few things that you will notice when you're sitting down for a Chinese tea ceremony is um, similar process with any kind of tea ceremony. If if you're having it with the teapot, you need to warm the teapot, and this is to prepare the vessel where the tea is going to be, uh, where the tea is basically going to go into. So you warm it and you warm it from the inside so you pour hot water in and you sterilize the teacups and while you could clean and do all this beforehand before guests arrive it's common courtesy to to do that while your guests are in front of you is to show you like oh look i am purifying this for you and it's also it can be you know a beautiful performance as well mm-hmm. so you pour the water inside your teapot, but one of the beautiful things that people are usually fascinated by is when you're pouring the water over the teapot, and it is a beautiful thing to watch the water run over the clay after you've closed the lid. And this is partly to heat to heat up the teapot and uh, to rinse it, just to purify it from any dust. And you know that dust is also symbolic as well. It's not just literal, but it's symbolic as um, you know because. Back in ancient times, if you lived in the city or if you traveled to the city for work and business, this was seen as um, the, you know, the worldly aspects of things. And when you were sitting down for a tea ceremony, you were really tuning into the spiritual side of life. And um, with the city and with all the business stuff, there was a lot of dust because the roads were made of, du- you know, made of dirt, so a lot of dust got everywhere. So it was said that whenever you were sitting down for tea, you were washing away the dust of the world. Oh, my so, God, I love that. Yeah, so it's not just literal, but it's symbolic, and that is something that is just just—it's beautiful. It's like when you enter the tea space, you're washing away the dust of the world. So, yeah. Yeah, so the same thing goes with the tea leaves. You're rinsing the tea leaves of that as well, as well as to prepare them. So you help them open up. Uh, So like the first rinse is to wash away that dust, but also to help them open up and to open up the essence um, so that when you do further steepings, you know, you're able to capture more of the essence, which is the oils. And then uh, one of the last things that you'll do in the tea ceremony is you'll sniff or smell the cups. So they have these tiny cups and they also tiny cups and they also have fragrance cups. So basically after um, you'll you'll be served a little bit of tea and then there's like a longer cup that you place over yours and basically you flip it and you do it for a little bit and then you flip it back and you release the longer cup and you bring it up and the steam and the aroma comes out of it. And basically, you enjoy smelling the cup. So you're placing your nose near it, and you're basically not huffing. <laughs> it's not like, <laughs> but <laughs> gently smelling the cups. And um, this is really to appreciate the the aroma that comes with it. It's just, uh, it's really nice. And towards the end, when you're closing the ceremony, the host will uh, empty the the used tea leaves into a clean bowl and pass it around for the guests to look at and to also appreciate the smell and to look at as, you know, as the, that was the body of where the tea that you came from just was. So, um, yeah, so that's the Japanese tea ceremony. I'm sorry, Chinese tea ceremony. The Japanese tea ceremony is very different than uh, the Chinese and it's much more structured. This is where I have... Um, my more formal training, even though I appreciate, uh, both. I have never performed a Japanese tea ceremony for anyone. I would require much more training. It's much more strict. Um, but it's beautiful and everything is really focused on aesthetic. And I feel like there's this very, like, very, uh, there's this focus on like Venusian aspects of beauty as well as the Saturnian side to it where everything is not rigid but just very structured. Mm-hmm. So uh, the Japanese tea ceremony is known as Chanoyu, which means hot water for tea. Uh, it's also been called Sado, which is uh, the way of tea. And, um, and, Japanese tea ceremony, unlike Chinese tea ceremony where you might have green tea or oolong tea uh, or even red tea, there's various teas that they would use. They're using the leaves uh, to steep uh, for water. But for the Japanese tea ceremony, you're only going to drink matcha. So matcha is the ground-up green tea, the leaves of it. So you're actually drinking the leaf itself in water, and it's basically this ground-up a leaf ground up into a powder, a very fine powder, and then whisked, whisked with hot water, and then you drink that. So you're drinking the actual green tea itself. Mm. Uh, it's very tasty, uh, but it can be very bitter if you do it wrong. Um, but it's, it's very nice. So, uh, there's a little bit of difference, you know, the kettle, for example, in the Japanese tea ceremony, you'll either find it. And this depends on the season. You'll either find it hanging from the ceiling, like in the summer months and the hotter months, or it'll be embedded into the ground, uh, with like sand around it uh, during the colder months or during the winter and the fall. So, um, that's one of the differences. Another thing is that when you enter the tea house for a Japanese tea ceremony, everyone comes in through the same door. So there's generally a walk through nature because it's put off like away from city life and away from everything. Ideally, you know, somewhere and secluded in nature or maybe through a garden. So often you'll walk through like a path in a garden. And this is all part of that process. And you're leaving, you know, the material world or the The you know, all of the things behind from that, and just entering into this spiritual space. So, you clean yourself before you wash your hands out of a usually like a water basin that's right outside the tea house, and everyone takes off their shoes before entering, and you enter. Through this tiny door, so you have to crawl through. That's the only way to get in. And this is also symbolic of leaving your ego, leaving your status, and everything that represents you in the outside world behind. Because everyone is equal when they enter this tea room or the tea house. So, um, you know, in ancient days, warriors or samurai or even business people, they would all enter through this door. And once they entered you know they bowed and you are at the same level as everyone else there's no like i make more money than you or anything like that everyone is left you know at the same essentially as we come into the world so um, that's amazing yeah it's really it's it's nice it's humbling and it's it's beautiful so like there's this whole kind of choreographic ritual to the japanese tea ceremony you know like for instance um you walk for example if you're a guest as well as if you're a host there are a certain number of steps that you take at a certain angle and you know the brushing of your feet against the tatami which is the bamboo mats is supposed to be a pleasant sound everything everything is catered towards a pleasurable experience for the guest so everything is about serving the guest and thinking about other people first and it sounds Simple, But when you're learning it, it is really humbling because it's like, wow, I never thought about, like, the way that I turned my back to someone or the way that I faced someone or, you know, all of these things. Like, I never thought about that and how that would be either pleasing or rude to someone. And, you know, a lot of it is cultural as well, but um, I've had plenty of instances where I was like my teacher was like yelling at me (laughs) because I did something wrong or I was like I don't understand what what did I do it's just you know um it's really interesting all the the nuances that go into or that have gone into this tradition um so one of the really nice things about the Japanese tea ceremony before you get your bowl which is passed down to you um you'll receive sweets. So there'll be either some form of like a pancake or a candy and it's always beautifully made or cake, for example. And it's usually a you know, it's usually chosen based on the season. Uh, There's also specific flowers chosen for that event and they usually come from nature. So it's not like a pretty bouquet of roses or something like that. There's really this emphasis on, Natural beauty. So, something known as this concept known as wabi sabi, which is really appreciating things as they are in nature, not like the way that we would cultivate them to make them look a certain way that we might like market online or something or an idealized image that we create later, like art. But the art of just picking, uh, you know, flowers intentionally but from nature and presenting them based on the season and you know always with the guest in mind mm-hmm. for their pleasure so i love it yeah so that's um some of the different different things about the japanese tea ceremony you know it's like all of these things actually go into that practice so when you're a student of japanese tea ceremony or chanoyu you're really learning about this flower arrangement Uh, which is known as Ikebana. So you're learning about that. You're learning about the vessels for that. you learn about these scrolls on the wall, which have a a message or like um, a saying. So it's this calligraphy, you know, scrolls on the wall for each season or each event. And um, so that goes like by each month. You're learning about all of these things, as well as if you get even deeper into it, um, you will learn how to, how to prepare a special meal, which is known as kaiseki. It's it's a it's like intricate meal, is dinner that you usually have and you host before the tea ceremony, which comes at the very end. Um, so that's for usually for a very formal event. Amazing. Yeah. So it's very intricate, just like everything is in the Japanese culture. It's uh, it's a really beautiful thing to to experience, um, even more so to learn. Very humbling. Um, so. You asked, your original question was, what is a tea ceremony like? Those are some of the experiences that you will, you probably have or have had if you've ever been to a tea ceremony. But outside of those two, two traditional forms, there's also something which has been spread really rapidly over those last several years, um, thanks to this scholar and this monk and teacher named wuda and he was formerly formally known as Aaron Fisher. He's an author of several um, books on tea ceremony and the way of tea. And he has a Center for Meditation and Tea, which has offered this entryway for beginners and people from all walks of life to begin a tea practice. Uh, so his introduction of ceremony is uh, he he does teach much about Gongfu tea as well, uh, but his introduction of the tea ceremony has also been through bowl tea. So in Japanese tea ceremony, you'll use a, a chawan, which is a tea bowl. So they don't use cups, but they use bowls because with matcha, you need to whisk it. And so you, you drink it out of a bigger vessel. And, um, and Wuda has also presented ceremony with bowl tea, but not necessarily for matcha, but for other forms of, you know, other kinds of tea, like loose leaf tea, and putting the tea directly in the bowl and drinking it from there, which is um, kind of taking the focus off of all the instruments that are found in, like, gong fu, for example, which requires a lot of skill and practice, and it's beautiful, but sometimes it can be distracting from the ultimate purpose of the ceremony. So... All of they are really structurally different from Chanoyu, this form of tea ceremony that he's introduced. It's really been spread over the across the world over the last several years, and it's really taken off as being something that's very approachable for people that are new to it or that want to, to be introduced to it and start a tea practice. Um, and this is the kind of ceremony that I've led in the past. It hasn't been you—it uh, hasn't been Japanese tea ceremony, which I, you know, I, I would nowhere be near ready to introduce that to people, and I, you know, wouldn't feel right doing that. I, you know, wouldn't even have my teacher's blessing for sure, and I wouldn't even ask. <laughs> but um, the Chinese tea ceremony, Gongfu uh, cha, aspects of that I have, I have introduced to people. But often the ceremony that I've led has been this uh, ceremony that. Buddha or Aaron Fisher has introduced to the public and has been spreading through his meditation center. That's so cool. Um, yeah. I feel like I should ask then.
0: You know, how how can people have their own special tea ceremonies at home? Is this something
1: people can bring into their home in everyday life? Yes, um, yes, and I definitely. So usually after each ceremony that I ever offer, I. I share with people how they can start uh, doing this at home, and really, you don't need to have all of these tools and instruments, which they're beautiful, it's nice to appreciate, and they do help, and it's something that you can acquire if you really commit to the practice along the way, but it can be pricey if you're just trying to buy everything all at once, mm-hmm. and um, you know, really, you just need a few basic things. You You need your tea, so ideally, loose-leaf tea and you need a bowl so or some kind of a vessel like a bowl or a cup but if you're having just if you're drinking straight from the bowl then or if you're drinking with the loose leaf and you don't have a teapot for example then i would say just a bowl like if you have a rice bowl that would actually be pretty perfect until you have you know acquire a certain tea bowl that's like made of certain ceramic or not ceramic of certain clay or something that gives you um, gives you what you really need, like something that's not going to burn your hands when you pick it up because it's so hot from the water, but it's specially made for that, those (laughs) tea bowls. Mm -hmm. Uh, Rice bowls are perfect for that if you don't have a tea bowl. They're the perfect size and uh, you can pour just the amount that you need in it. So a bowl and something to boil water with. If you don't have a kettle for water, then you can use a pot. I mean, you really don't need anything fancy to start with. So, and if you do have like a clear kettle or something like that, that's ideal so that you can watch the water boil and you can tell when it's ready to use. Oh, awesome. Yeah, it's a really great way to start um, because you can tell by the size of the bubbles, uh, you know, based on, you know, the temperature that you want it there's a certain size for each uh, of the bubbles that will reach by each temperature, and that's kind of like how you would gauge, you know, well, I'm drinking a green tea, so maybe I want like smaller bubbles or not as much boiling, whereas if I'm drinking like a black tea, I can let it bubble more and have bigger bubbles like fisheye bubbles. So um, so yeah, you start with your pot or your kettle, your tea bowl or your rice bowl, and your tea. and. If you're approaching this, you know, not just as sitting down for a nice cup of tea, which we tend to see in the West, tea is just like this commodity to enjoy, like we do coffee. But if you're enjoying this and you're welcoming it into your life as a sort of practice, like a meditative practice, then start with maybe three bowls. That's a great number to start with. Three is a special number. so start with three goals, you know, first and enjoy them slowly. Don't gulp it down, but just sit with awareness with your tea. And the goal is really, or I don't even want to say goal, but the ideal is to, to prepare your water, to use your water for the tea and do that without really thinking about anything else. And that sounds... For some of you, it might sound simple, like, oh, yeah, just prepare the tea. For some of you, it might sound like, oh, no, but I can't think about anything else. And this is a large part of the practice is this meditative state of mind, which is what the practice of tea is actually about, is to prepare tea and only to prepare tea. It's to become one with that process. And so it's no longer like your tea and you. It's just tea. And that, yeah. that's it's kind of a weird concept at first I think for some people but this is largely about what the way of tea is about and what you'll find in, like a lot of Asian martial arts or just this ideal um, this Chinese philosophy known as wu wei or just the way is it's just becoming one with the object so that there's no and that's hard to really say you know like cuz for there to be an object there needs to be a subject you know <clears throat> to experience but really it's about becoming one with that so it's really you know start with three bowls of tea and enjoy that you know just observe the the way you feel observe the way the water sounds when it boils the steam that comes off of it and then when you put your tea in the in the bowl and you put your water in you know like observe the way the bowl feels in your hands the heat from that and the way that it smells and the way that it tastes and the way that maybe it tastes uh during the second bowl and the third bowl it might you might, your experience might change and that is all part of the process is going with this flow of change and experiencing it to the point that you are one with that. That's so beautiful. I love that. Um, I have a few like practical questions,
0: but then I want to ask you a, a woo-woo question in a little bit, but okay. first for the practical, I would love to know what's a good tea for someone to try who's like trying to switch from drinking coffee every morning to maybe trying to enjoy tea every day instead. And on that note, if you could also recommend a good tea for stress, sleep, and digestion. Okay. Um, Okay. Sorry. Can you back up to the first question? Sure. What is a good tea for someone to try who's um, switching from coffee?
1: Yes. Okay. Um, So there are a few teas I think that would be good for uh, switching if you're trying to switch from coffee and you want to drink more tea instead. Uh, Pu'er is a really great... Tea. So, poor, there are two categories actually. There's sho poor, which is basically sho means uh, prepared or ripened. Uh, so, basically, it's speeding up the fermentation process that goes into preparing um, when the, the poor is. Processed, and then there's Shen, shen pur, which means fresh or raw, which means that it's left to ferment and age naturally. Um, so the differences between these is that the is has much usually more of a malty flavor. It's a darker liqueur. It's um, so I think that's great for people that if they really like the taste of coffee, um, you know that dark, richer flavor, then I would say probably try a show Um if it's more if you're drinking coffee more because you just really need the caffeine and you want that the 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 energy, then I would say maybe try shampoor uh, because it's really full of vibrant chi. It really can wake wake you up. It has more of an astringent taste so that it will be different in that sense. One of the other options is maybe having a red tea. Um, Red teas are what we know in the West as black tea. Um, It's not actually correct to call red tea black tea, but we've done that because over centuries, you know, when the English went were first acquiring their tea from Chinese. There was a lot of broken English and not really a lot of understanding and the communication involved between the two parties. And, mm-hmm. um, what was actually known as red tea became what was called black tea. And, um, that had black tea has been one of the more popular teas in the West, and a lot of this is due to the shelf life that you know it has a longer shelf life. But back in the day, um, some of this tea had been you know not stored well. and when Europeans started trying to process their tea by themselves, uh, they weren't very good at it at first, and they were doing it. They weren't doing it by hand; they were using machines. And the tea started to not come out the way that they, you know, the way that they had first tasted it, and when they had bought it from the Chinese. And so, you know, then they started adding milk and sugar and other things to the tea to make it taste better. Um, but so when you hear black tea, and the reason it matters is not just, you know. Because of the name, but there is another category of black tea where the liquor is very dark, the the tea is very dark. So not just the leaves. So for that reason, you know, we do have different categories. Not we have a black tea category, but it's not what we usually know. And then there's red tea. So red tea is, I think, also another good substitution if you're switching from coffee because of that um, flavor. It's really full bodied. Mm-hmm. And um, you might try something, for example, like um, a red bud tea. So bud tea is just like all the buds before the leaf has completely opened. It's just usually like the buds are fuzzy and it's a really juicy kind of tea that it's a lot of tannins in it. So it's a really strong flavor. And um, I would also say if you haven't tried matcha, I would try matcha because matcha is a nice alternative as well. And it's uh, different. It's got good flavor as well. Um, And it won't be as strong as coffee, even though you're drinking the leaf itself. So there definitely is the caffeine kick in there, but it's not like a... I would say probably not like a hard crash, like maybe when you come down from coffee, like you've drank a lot of coffee and then you're like, oh my God, I'm so sluggish because you know, I need more coffee. <laughs> yeah. What about a good tea for like stress
0: if you're looking to de-stress?
1: Um, so I would say I actually for a, probably a couple of them, cause you mentioned sleep too, um, there is a tea known as GABA, so you can get, like, for example, GABA oolong. So the GABA, uh, GABA is a, a neurotransmitter for the central <laughs> nervous system. So it stands for gamma amino acid. And uh, GABA tea was actually invented by the Japanese. I think it was like in the 80s, and. Um, It's really great because it prevents this overexcitement of the nervous system. So people that are really stressed out or they have anxiety, for example, uh, this is really going to be great for those types of people. Like it helps lower your blood pressure. It's, um, you know, it it basically stops overfiring of neurons. So it's really great for people that are really stressed out and just, Kind of like switched on to this fight or flight, you know. That's amazing. Sort of thing. I had no idea this existed. Yeah, so it's really great. <laughs> it's really nice. Um, it's even though there's caffeine in it, like I would say, you know, if you wanted wanted a tea before bedtime, like if you were to have an actual tea like Camellia sinensis that has caffeine in it, I would definitely say try a GABA tea, a GABA oolong, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, as far as that, like if If you're worried about the caffeine aspect of it and you're trying to have a tea before sleep, then I would say probably don't go with actual tea. I would go with an herb, you know, like typical things like chamomile. Uh, Magnolia bark is also really good. and That's used in Chinese medicine. Um, oh, cool. So like boiling um, or decocting magnolia bark and and or lemon balm. So all of, I mean, chamomile, everyone knows, and it's just because it's worked so well. Mm-hmm. Um, but lemon balm and magnolia bark are a couple of others as well, that would be great for sleep. Um, but if you're actually like want to drink actual tea, then try a GABA oolong because it's great for stress and it's not really something that's going to like stimulate you um, terribly before bed, so I like it. I, I've drank it several times before, like and at the night at nighttime, and it doesn't really bother me. Amazing. How about for digestion? Um, digestion. So I again, we'll have to say pu'er. Um, so maybe a shou which is already, or an aged sheng. I would say probably shou actually. Um, so that is the ripened or prepared poor. Um, and this is because it goes undergoes the process of fermentation. So because of that, there are microbes that are part of the tea and you know, it's basically a natural probiotic. So if you were to continuously drink, to drink this, it's basically like if you were also like some people like to drink kombucha, well, this is kind of like that. Um, yeah, so poor is actually really great for digestion. Um, Sometimes you could drink a green tea or, you know, actually, no, forget I said that because green tea and property is actually very cooling to the, to the stomach and you don't want cool for the stomach unless, you know, you have too much heat, um, internal heat. But I would say either poor or red tea. Um, both of those would be good for digestion, like after a meal, for example. Amazing. I'm
0: just curious, what's the rarest tea you've ever tried? Is there one? <sighs>
1: It's really hard to say. Um, I would probably say um, a show poor from the 90s, which is aged, but honestly, it's not really that old. Um, I, I feel like there's still so, so much to experience as far as tea and to try, because there's just like, you could never, no one could ever really try all the varietals of tea that exist because there's just too many. There really, it's just, it's just not possible. I mean, that's like a, you know, like a tea lover or a tea person, you know, like that will be something that they, they do all their life is continuously trying new teas. Um, I love that. That's like astrology,
0: you know, like yeah. you're always going to be learning something new. Yeah. Um, I have kind of a random question. Okay. You, you're a mom and you, you breastfeed. Mm-hmm. Do you, are you, have you been drinking tea and what does your baby think?
1: Uh, yeah, I still drink tea even though I breastfeed. Um, so there's rarely actually, I, that was something that I had like researched into before, right after I, maybe even before having him, but I think probably after, cause I had forgotten, um, I was like, can I drink caffeine? Like, can I have tea and coffee after I have a baby? Like if I'm breastfeeding and very little caffeine actually goes into the milk. Like I think it's like 1% or even less, mm-hmm. um, Newborns up to like six months tend to be more sensitive to the caffeine. So they, you know, depending on your baby, you know, every baby's different. They might react strongly to it. Uh, mine, my baby doesn't really, and you know, he's a year old now. He's a toddler now. So he definitely doesn't really respond to it. And I don't really drink, I don't think I drink enough anyways to, to really affect him. Um, so he doesn't really seem to mind. <laughs> okay, cool. So for the moms at home, you know, watch out
0: until about six months and afterward, I guess, lightly experiment and see how it works. Yes. Cool. Um, so now for my woo boo question, have you ever had like an amazing spiritual experience with tea?
1: Um, so, yes, I think probably like when I first started, um, I mean, you know, like everyone, I think everyone, it's just one of the, besides water, it is the most, um, drunk beverage in the world. Tea is just, you know, like it's everywhere. Um, so like everyone else, I, tea was in my life before I had a practice of tea ceremony and and tea is a, a way of life. But when I first started approaching it in that way, uh, I I was, like, really excited to be experimenting, and I had, you know, my first teapot, and I was sitting at uh, the dining room table, and I was drinking, and I felt like, um, you know, it's not like I was tripping or, like, high or something, but I did feel something that I haven't felt actually in a long time Um I don't know. It was really weird. It's like when I got up from the table, I had drank several cups of tea, so I prepared myself several pots and drink by myself. I was just experimenting. It was with the water temperature, the taste, the feel. And when I got up, I felt like, almost like I had been drinking. Like I felt kind of slightly dizzy and very, like I was walking on clouds. It was really weird. I was just like, wow, I feel really good. (laughs) Um, But um, I, I haven't really experienced it that often. Other than that, um, I can't really say that I've experienced like out of this world, um, maybe like visions or anything like that from drinking tea. Really. I think it's just given me a lot of perspective on the way that I approach life, like, Mm -hmm. you know, with my baby and, you know, with everything with stress, it's like the way that you approach life is the way that you're going to approach tea. And, you know, there's, there's this, There's a lot to be appreciated from this practice of tea as far as meditation goes, becoming one and observing things in nature, the patterns of nature, and finding relationships with that. So um, that's really what I've garnered from it, is being able to appreciate connection with nature, with people, with community. Um, because, you know, as an Aquarius, I tend to be kind of a, a bit of a loner. Um, mm-hmm. but I still find, you know, like everyone else, I still find a need for connection and T has really been able to bring that into my life, um, in person, you know, like not just through social media. Yeah. Yeah. I,
0: I think tea is absolutely magical. I think that there is a spirit in all of the plants and all the different kinds of tea. And I think just like you were describing earlier, how like if you're able to make your tea and enjoy your tea and just make it about the tea, it really does something to like I think the way that your mind works and it really is this really powerful meditative practice that helps, um, helps you stay centered during like stressful times when you do it often and just for me, like drinking tea and, and drinking it intentionally has been such a, an amazing part of my spiritual practice. And I have always really loved tea, but it was when I like found your Instagram page and like saw you doing these like tea ceremonies that I got really excited to like go even deeper into it. because I didn't even know that like people were doing that or thinking about it that way. And so I've learned a lot about tea from you. So thank you so much.
1: You're welcome, yeah, like, the the same, I had a similar experience, you know, like, um, I didn't know that tea ceremony existed until I was, like, at the, I was finishing up at um, university, and I was, that was when I was, still doing my degree in business. And like the last semester, I I got a chance to take like electives that didn't have to apply to anything. And so I took something that had nothing to do with business. And I took um, some electives on like Asian culture and religion. And that's when I found out about the concept of tea ceremony. And I was like, wow, that's really cool. But I didn't know that I could actually take classes anywhere near me until I think it was like, No, it was, like, three or four years later that I found out, like, there are actual classes not that far from me that I could take, and then I, you know, started taking them, but um, yeah, it just really changed a lot of things about, like, the way I approach ritual and intention and really appreciating all that goes into that process because, you know, like, we kind of take it for granted, like, we'll see boxed tea or just, you know packaged tea at the store or you know like it arrives if you order it online it arrives to your doorstep in a box but we take for granted all that goes into it like all the natural processes that you know the earth provides these resources but then as well like there's a whole culture like there's all these farmers and what they do to prepare it it's one of the most labor-intensive jobs out there to like to harvest and process and then to sell tea so it's really cultivated a greater sense of appreciation for what i have including that practice and including tea yeah Well, uh, thank you so much for
0: taking time for, uh, with with talking with me today and I want to be respectful of your time, but I want to ask just one more question, uh, which is actually about acupuncture and I get acupuncture done weekly and it's been life changing. I love it. I feel so good when I leave, but people always want to ask me if the needles hurt. So Ashley, I want to ask you, what do you say when people ask you if the needles hurt?
1: Uh, I say that it depends on you. Uh, I don't like to just automatically say, no, it doesn't hurt because some everyone has a different pain threshold. You know, some people, mm-hmm. the tiniest little thing and, and, you know, the tiniest little prick and they could be like, ouch, you know. Yeah. But uh, other people, you know, claim that they don't even feel it. And depending on the practitioner and multiple things, you know, like depending on how stressed out you are, how tired you are people that tend to come and they're more tired or stressed out are going to be more sensitive to the needles. It's going to probably feel more intense, um, maybe less comfortable, maybe not painful, but just uncomfortable. So I, you know, people, because they hear needle, they freak out automatically and, It's interesting because a lot of people that come that ask that question are people that have tattoos, which that's way (laughs) more painful. It's no, the needles are nowhere near as strong or as big um, or thick as a tattoo needle. Uh, So it's, it's definitely not painful if you're comparing it to that. Uh, Sometimes you don't feel it. Sometimes you might feel it. And it really depends also on where in the body you put it. Like, you know, if you have, if you put it on the feet or the hands where there's more nerve endings, you're definitely probably going to feel it, but it might not necessarily hurt. It also depends on how deep the the acupuncturist puts it, and if they're trying to stimulate a response to get you know the chi to flow there. Uh, but generally, I say even if you do feel something or if it's uncomfortable, the sensation shouldn't last more than like a couple seconds to a minute and then, you know, the pain or the the sensation should subside as far as like discomfort. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I, I wouldn't, I would say don't let that deter you if you're afraid to try it because you're afraid of the needles, like it might hurt. I would say definitely try it because, you know, your acupuncturist can always adjust it so that it's not painful.
0: Yes, absolutely. For me, it doesn't hurt at all. Once in a blue moon, she'll put one in and I'm like, oh, I could feel that one. But even though I can feel it, it doesn't necessarily hurt. And you're absolutely right. Um, Your acupuncturist can always adjust what they're doing. Yes. Yeah. So to wrap up, I just, I would love to know what's next for your practice as an astrologer and with acupuncture and with tea. And also if you could just tell everyone about your amazing new podcast.
1: Sure. Um, I'm not practicing acupuncture right now. Uh, My all my work right now is centered on astrology, and a lot of that is just you know writing. I write horoscopes, and now I'm kind of expanding out. I just recently created a blog called The Cosmic Soup Bowl, and. Included with that blog is a podcast that is featuring what Annabelle had mentioned before, featuring astrology and spirituality. Um, so I am trying to integrate more of my background of uh, Oriental medicine and acupuncture there, um, things about wellness and just um, the culture of spirituality in general. You know, all of that, the the broad spectrum of that 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 includes. Um, so, I, like I said before, I'm not currently practicing acupuncture. I haven't practiced since right before I got pregnant, but um, since I became a mother and experiencing all the ups and downs that come from the postpartum period, I've really gained a, a greater appreciation for that background that I have and what I've learned. And so, um, my focus has also shifted a lot after caring for my son, and a lot of that has been you know, pertaining to kind of being in survival mode is like, you know, when you're taking care of another person, you know, you're trying to keep someone alive, basically, you don't really, not always, I think a lot of people, let's be real, are just in survival mode. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, you kind of lose the ability or just the time or the focus to care for yourself and, you um, it's brought a lot of things up for me and so i have really kind of started shifting my attention towards when like how i will get back into a uh, acupuncture practice it's not anytime soon, but when I do, I'm actually really interested in specializing in treating people with shen disturbance. So shen is um, it's Chinese for the spirit and the heart. So that basically means focusing on mental imbalances like stress and anxiety, and also um, helping or treating people like women postpart um, going through the postpartum period and children. So, um, as far as astrology goes, my practice is largely done from my bed while I'm nursing. Uh, I like sit on my phone and I'll just type out my notes or I'll analyze charts and I'll like look through transits on my phone while he's like, like attached to my boob in the bed. And Mm -hmm. that's actually where I do some of my deepest thinking. Um, it's not exactly ideal because uh, I often have to stop like mid thought or note and put on the phone when he stirs. But, uh, that's where my practice is right now. And since he's been born, uh, you know, like I, I mentioned before, this is the same, it really all integrates like my awareness of my own personal, um, I guess, emotional reflexes, like being someone that's constitutionally prone to anxiety, for example, has really been brought to my attention since being, like, going through pregnancy and then having a baby. Like, it's really reared its head, and I've had to learn to, like, use the tools that I have and to um, address it, you know, not just kind of be lazy about it because it's easy to do that. Um, but that just doesn't, you know, it doesn't serve me in the long run and I can't really be an effective practitioner of anything if I'm constantly, you know, in an anxious state. Um, but I actually find, you know, being able to address my own things and also, you know, gives me kind of more of a sense of purpose to share with other people that also have those same experiences. And I think it's really easy for women, especially in the postpartum period to suffer that. And so I'm really interested in kind of expanding all of my practice out to embrace people like that, that feel like not seen because like they're stuck or, Mm -hmm. you know, like just feel underappreciated. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so, yeah, that's where, you know, the future of my practice is going, I think. Uh, my podcast is going to be focusing on a lot of these topics, you know, talking about um, wellness, astrology, of those things putting them together talking about them separately as well and um like i like you mentioned before i'm really excited to be doing that new segment that's going to come start coming out on wednesdays the witches grew uh the witches grew wednesdays and uh, we're going to be interviewing different witches of the community trying to destigmatize the title witch which (laughs) has a a lot of you know stigma attached to it so i i want to cultivate more appreciation and just desensitizing people to all the, you know, the things that they imagine when they hear the word witch and like give people a sense of like, hey, you can ask these people about really important things that you probably want to know about, but you didn't know because you're too scared to approach them or because you have these ideals in your head that, you know, a witch is a bad thing.
0: Mm -hmm. Well, thank you so much for coming on. How can people find
1: and follow you? Uh, You can find me on my website at www.cosmicsuitbowl.com, and um, I have, you know, there's, you can reach out there. My email is there on the Connect page uh, down at the bottom. You can email me there at at ashleyatcosmicsuitbowl.com. So, yeah. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It's been
0: fun talking to you. Yes. Uh, Thank you so much, and we're going to have to have you come back on to talk about acupuncture, too. Sounds fun. Yes. All right, everyone. Thank you so much for listening. You can support The Serpent Cast on Patreon by going to patreon.com slash The Serpent Cast. We love having your help. And, of course, you can follow The Serpent Cast on Instagram and Twitter at The Serpent Cast. And you can follow me, Annabelle Gatt, on Twitter at AnnabelleGatt underscore or on Instagram at AnnabelleGatt and Sophie St. Thomas, who wasn't here today. But you can keep up with her on Instagram and Twitter at The Bowie Cat. We love you all so much, and we will see you next week.